great to be with all of you this morning. Um, you can go ahead and open up in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy. As Michael said, my name is Tuck Boyer, and I recently transferred in from a different Sunday school class, but I'm a longtime member of Timberlake and, and uh, excited to have an opportunity to share the word with you. Been doing some study in the book of First Timothy, and so I thought it would be good to to bring part of the fruit of that to you. And uh, thought we would just go ahead and start in the really the first paragraph of First Timothy after the greeting. Um, but anyway, let's go ahead and read our passage. We'll be in uh, verses uh, chapter one, verses three through seven. Paul says to Timothy, actually let's back up to verse 1 and we'll get it ready to start. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And now our passage, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to become teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Have you ever known a person who talked too much? <laughs> Someone who just really loves to hear themselves talk. You know, the kind of person, you see them in the grocery store aisle, they have their back turned and your sinful flesh wants to run the other direction before they notice you're there in the building. <laughs> it's not that you don't want to be a good friend to them, but you know that any conversation with them is likely to be a long one. And they seem to have an uncanny ability to talk for a long time without really saying much of anything. Well, our passage here in 1 Timothy is addressing a situation where people like that were trying to lead and teach in the church. It's one thing for someone to talk your ear off when they bump into you at Walmart. It might cost you some time, but there's really no harm done. But if a person were to take their propensity for fruitless chit-chat into the pulpit, you've got a much bigger problem. Well, this is exactly the sort of situation that was going on in Ephesus when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. Paul and his, and his assistant Timothy had been tending to the fairly young church in Ephesus when Paul was called away to another church, which was in Macedonia. But the problem was that the church in Ephesus wasn't ready to be left alone yet. The church wasn't mature and had issues that needed to be corrected, not the least of which was the problem of these people, some of the teachers in the church they were not teaching faithfully. Instead of teaching the clear truths of Scripture, they were wandering off into vain speculations. Put it another way, they were more interested in interested than trivia 
in a biblical truth. Paul wrote this letter to Timothy to help him know how better to deal with the, the problems of the church and to lead faithfully. And the first issue that he addresses here in this letter is the issue of these trivial teachers. Paul knows that Timothy is going to need his convictions to be reinforced if he's going to be able to deal rightly with them. Timothy needs to understand the problem accurately in order to be able to deal with it effectively. It seems from the context that Paul isn't primarily focused on heretics here, but on the type of people who fail to teach what is most important because they're too distracted teaching about side issues. In other words, Paul's not dealing with the, the heretic who comes in and intentionally tries to pervert the gospel so much as the guy who just loves to hear himself talk and desires to sound smart in front of others and thinks that it's amusing to engage in philosophical musings for no other purpose than just mere mental exercise. But their teaching itself wasn't the only problem. They also were not living the kind of exemplary, exemplary life that is required in, for an overseer of the church. It's not hard to think of a modern day example of this sort of person with this type of character. It could be the biblical studies major in college who likes to use a bunch of fancy theological jargon, sit around and talk with his friends, discussing, <coughs> discussing issues about how to explain the Trinity on Sunday afternoon, but then on Sunday evening, goes home and when he's by himself, no one's watching, indulges in pornography or something <coughs> sin. Or it could be the man who likes to critique the pastor's sermons every week and point out every little flaw, mispronunciation, or lack of clarity. Although he may sound impressive to the people who don't really know him very well, his family and close friends know that behind the impressive front is a life of unrepentant sinful anger. How effective do you think someone like this is in ministering to the church? Obviously not very effective. Now imagine if someone like this were trying to teach in the church and possibly even vying for eldership. This is likely the sort of situation that Timothy was dealing with in Ephesus. What a mess. So in this passage today, Paul's going to give Timothy what I'm calling two essential convictions for dealing with trivial teachers in the church. Now that's a mouthful, so I'll give it to you again in case you're taking notes. <clears throat> two essential convictions for dealing with trivial teachers in the church. How do you handle a situation like this? How dangerous are these teachers? How decisively should they be dealt with? I'm sure that Timothy was probably wondering the exact same thing. This is why Paul takes the time here to help Timothy think through the situation. He knows that Timothy needs to have the right convictions if he's going to know what to do. This brings us to the first conviction for dealing with trivial teachers. Number one, trivial teachers must be silenced because they are a hindrance to faithful shepherding. Or if you want an abbreviation, you can just say, trivial teachers are a hindrance to faithful shepherding. Look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. 
He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Paul reminds Timothy in verse 3 that one of the reasons that he left him in Ephesus was to deal with some people in the church who were trying to set themselves up as teachers. Teachers were needed in the church. The church needed more good, qualified elders. The problem was that some of those who wanted to be, become teachers were unqualified, both because of their personal character and the content of their teaching. <clears throat> Notice in verse 3 that Timothy is supposed to charge these men not to teach any different doctrine. The word translated teach any different doctrine it's actually one word in Greek. It doesn't necessarily mean someone who is teaching something outright heretical. It literally just means to differently teach. In other words, Paul didn't only prohibit teaching heretical doctrines. He also disallowed any deviation from teaching what was clearly inspired and authoritative in the word of God. Here's the point or the implication whether in Paul's time or in ours, God has given us everything that we need to know to live a godly life. We don't need to speculate about things that the Bible doesn't give us an answer to. We may wish that we knew answers to questions like how God can be one and yet three, or how God can be fully in control of what happens and yet still allow humans to make real choices and not just be puppets. Or, well, you get the point, the list could go on. And it's not wrong to ask these sorts of questions. But we need to remember that God is not obligated to answer every question that we might wonder about. And if God chooses not to reveal something in his word, we need to trust that he must have decided for a good reason. But we don't need to know. And we should be content with that. You remember my example of the college students who college student who tries to solve problems that are way too complicated for him, while at the same time harboring unrepentant sin in his life. Paul would say that this person needs to stop using the Bible to speculate about theoretical things and start using it to help him go to war with sin and seeking to destroy his soul and his testimony. The Bible is for sinners who desperately need it and know that they need it, not for intellectuals who only want to use it as fodder for debate. But notice that Paul is not just speaking here about every Christian in their personal lives, although this passage definitely has implications for that. Paul's main target here is people who are teaching in the church. So what is it about fruitless discussion that is especially damaging when it comes from the pulpit? Well, the answer is pretty obvious. What comes from the pulpit is supposed to be from God. The pulpit should never be used as an outlet for a man who just wants to run his mouth. Look at verse 4 again. It says, Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Notice this, which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. 
Paul says that if we always preach on side issues like myths and endless genealogies, it will promote speculation. Speculation might be interesting, but it's of, it's of no more value than that. It's of no use in showing people the magnitude of the grace of God toward them or in training them to live godly lives in light of that grace. What teachers should be trying to promote is what Paul calls the stewardship from God by faith. So what's the stewardship he's talking about? What does he mean when he says promote the stewardship? Well, there are a couple possibilities of what this word can mean. They're both very similar to each other, but have a different nuance. When the word is used of a person who is a steward, it often refers to someone who, is, who oversees a household or an estate. The steward is responsible for the management of the place. The well-being and proper functioning of the household are up to the steward. And if anything ever goes wrong, the steward is the one who needs to take care of it and who ultimately answers for it. Another nuance of this word, though, that I think fits the context even better is that a stewardship can also refer to a program of instruction. So to give you an example, if a, if a steward in the first sense is like an estate manager, think of a steward in the second sense as like a college or seminary professor who bears the responsibility to pass on a particular body of teaching. It's not up to that professor to go up there and just teach about whatever interests him that day. For instance, a theology professor if he gets up there in front of the class and starts to prattle on about the history of ancient China or some other equally unrelated topic, he likely won't have a job for very long. He was hired to teach theology. So how does all this apply to Timothy? His stewardship. And by extension, how does it apply to us? Well, what these teachers didn't realize was that if you're going to be a person leading in, in the church, that is a huge, huge responsibility. God has laid out very specific instructions for how he wants his church to be taught and shepherded. They are not at liberty, these teachers in Ephesus, to say whatever they feel like saying or whatever might interest them or tickle their fancy. And neither are we in modern-day America. They needed to realize that speaking, that they were speaking to real people. Real souls are on the line every time the word of God is heralded. It's a dangerous thing to wield influence. It's a very serious thing for a would-be teacher to use the, the platform of the church to stand up there and spout and fluff and claim that he's speaking for God. An illustration I thought of is that it would be like a five-year-old who wants to be a doctor when he grows up, but he doesn't know how to do it. He gets hold of a rusty saw in the garage and starts to practice on his younger brother. <laughs> Should the parents stand by and watch and say, oh, well, he's, he's learning. He'll figure it out. Of course not. This needs to be dealt with severely 
end quickly. And that's exactly what Paul wants Timothy to do in the Ephesian church. Now, notice that Paul gives more detail about this stewardship. He says not only that it is from God, but that it is by faith. Or another way to translate it would be in faith. What does that mean? I think it means that faith is the goal. Faith is what the stewardship is all about. Leaders in the church are to bear this responsibility of stewardship with the goal of fostering faith in those who hear. If we want to know if we're teaching rightly, we should ask ourselves, is my aim to produce real faith in my hearers, or am I simply rendering my own opinions about things that are interesting to me, but are not clearly laid out in Scripture? And of course, when I say faith, we need to understand faith in the Bible is not just talking about a strong belief in anything. Faith always has an object. It's the rock-solid trust in everything that God has clearly revealed in His Word. Therefore, questionable speculations and human opinions can never be what the Church of God needs to hear from the pulpit because they're not the words of God and they can never produce real faith. This is exactly why we do expository preaching here at our church. That doesn't mean that it's wrong to preach a, a topical message or something of that nature, but it does mean that whatever you preach had better come from the Word of God, rightly interpreted, and not just from your own head. If we're going to do spiritual heart surgery from the pulpit, we need to lay down the rusty saw of our own opinion and use the scalpel of God's word as he intended it for, to be used. That raises the stakes of it, doesn't it? If we're going to teach in the church, we need to take that responsibility seriously. And if we are the ones who are listening in the church and not the teachers, we need to take seriously whom we allow to influence us. Which I hope is one reason that all of you have ended up at Timberlake because you see that the word of God is right at the top. But this principle applies from everything to deciding where you'll go to church, all the way down to what internet or radio personality that you will allow and influence you through your earbuds or on the radio in the car. Don't let it be the five-year-old with the rusty saw. The second conviction that Timothy needs to have for dealing with trivial teachers he needs to know trivial teachers are wayward because they have abandoned what is most important. They're wayward because they've abandoned what's most important. That's going to be in verses 5 through 7. This second conviction might need a little explaining, so just bear with me. Look, if you would, at the beginning of verse 5. Paul says, The aim of our charge is love. That's what's most important that these trivial teachers have been. What kind of love? He, he goes on. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So Paul says that the aim of the charge is love. But what charge is he talking about? In Greek it just says the charge. Well, I think it's the charge 
that he's just made to Timothy to silence these trivial teachers. So you say, the aim of that charge is love? Paul's aim in having these teachers silenced is love? Well, yeah, it is. A teacher who is faithful will be motivated by love and will seek to grow love in his listeners, love for God and love for others. But these teachers have drifted away from this priority. And that's precisely the problem. That's why they needed to be silenced. If love is not what motivates you in your teaching, Paul says you're missing the whole point. He goes on in verse 6 and 7. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. What do they swerve from? Well, he tells us they swerve from love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. We could do an entire study on these terms, and I'm sure it would be very fruitful, but, but at the moment, just notice a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Look at what they all have in common. They all refer to a sincere and unhypocritical life in every area, from your private conduct to your public speech and everything in between. It's the heart condition that produces the life above reproach that Paul talks about later in chapter 3 of the same letter when he gives the qualifications for an elder in the church. It's the life that can stand up to scrutiny because there's nothing to hide. And it's a product of true faith in Christ. This is what a man's life must look like if he's going to love the people of God the way he should. Now we can begin to understand how these trivial teachers in Ephesus could fall so short of loving their people. Isn't your gut reaction to be surprised when you hear of someone who cares less about shepherding the flock of God than about their own ego? And to wonder how in the world someone could get to that point. Well, Paul tells us how this happens in verse 6. These men have drifted in their character in some way. You can't truly say of these men anymore that they have a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. As a result of that drift in their character, now they're not able to love the way they are. Paul says in verse 6 that they got this way by swerving from these. Swerving from what? He just said, from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. They've drifted in their character. So teachers don't just become trivial and focus on trivialities for no reason. They stray from godly character. Then they begin to lose their love for others. And as a result, they wander off into talking about nonsense and harming the church. And probably not even realizing that they're doing anything wrong. This should be a warning to all of us. If we drift away from living lives of integrity, our love will grow cold and will quickly fall out of touch 
with the spiritual needs of the people that we're responsible for in life. Next, look at Paul's further description of these teachers in verse 7. It's pathetic, really. He says that they want to be teachers of the law, but they don't even understand the things that, that they're talking about. It's not just that they run into things that they don't know every now and then. All of us do that. And when we do, we need to humbly admit that we don't know something and, and seek to learn it. But instead of doing that, these teachers were acting according to the motto of fake it till you make it. They likely wanted to look good in the eyes of others so much that they were unwilling to just say, I don't know. And they speculated about things that were not even important for, for them to know. Instead, instead of humbly admitting their lack of knowledge, they were making confident assertions about things that were far beyond them. So let me try to give you a recap of this second conviction. Condense it a little bit. Timothy needs to know that love for God's people is the goal for teachers in the church. These teachers in Ephesus had it all, had it all backwards. They started with a desire to teach. And this desire was not accompanied by knowledge. Then, to make matters worse, they failed to live holy lives. And this led them to become distracted from loving other people and loving God. It should have been reversed. One should live a godly life, genuinely, first. Then, that will produce genuine love. Only once these things are in place is a man ready to pursue greater knowledge in order to teach in the church and have a position of leadership. So, if you're someone who has a desire to pursue some sort of teaching role in the church, Paul says that's a good desire. But we need to be careful not to deal with the wrong motivation. And also be careful to live a holy life and to develop godly character. That's far more important than how much systematic theology you might know or whether you are proficient with Greek and Hebrew. For those of us who are already teaching in some capacity in the church, we need to remember that we're not at liberty to teach whatever we find interesting. Our job is to explain what God said. That means you need to make the main point of the text that you're preaching the main point of your sermon. That means that we try to understand what God wants us to get out of the passage. Not pick a hobby horse and try to find a passage to support it. And not to look for some hidden meaning that no one else has ever found before. God has given us his divine curriculum all we have to do is pass it along faithfully. But what implications does this passage have for someone who's an average Christian in the church, who's not a teacher or leader, who's not going to ever be behind the pulpit? Well, I would say at least two things. First, 
make sure that as you seek to influence people in your life, whether it's your spouse or your children or other people in the church or anyone else in your, your sphere of life, that you're careful to speak biblical truth and not your own ideas whenever you're trying to make truth claims that should have authority on these people's lives. The second implication is please be careful whom you allow to influence you, especially when they're claiming to speak for God. There's so much available these days just at the click of a mouse, from preachers that you can find online to the so-called discernment ministries to Christian bloggers. There's just so much out there. A lot of it is good. But unfortunately, even more of it is not. So much of it is garbage. And not just unhelpful, but dangerous. With the rise of technology, truth has never been more readily available. And we should thank God for that. But at the same time, it's also never been easier for false teachers to influence those in the church through the means of technology. This is exactly why God was so wise in setting up the church the way that he has. Qualified leaders who love God's people are charged with the duty of guarding the flock. The members are responsible to hold their leaders accountable. And the leaders live their lives right in front of the congregation that they teach every week. So that someone is going to know if their lives ever depart from having a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You can't do that with a preacher on the internet. My point isn't that we can't benefit from those resources at all. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just trying to say that we need to exercise extreme care and caution and discernment with what teaching influences that we will allow into our minds. And the less accountability that someone has to the local church, the less stock we should put in what they say. <coughs> I also want to encourage all of us that when we go to the Bible and read it on our own, we need to resist the temptation to try to reduce it down to mere head knowledge, to just get the point and move on. Or to just study things that we're interested in for the sake of interest. We need to avoid just getting so caught up in trying to figure out the meaning or chase down an interesting detail that we, we never read the word in a way that it changes the way we live and the way that we think. God loves us so much that he gave us his word. He knew that it was exactly what we needed. So let's listen to God's voice written in his word and not get distracted by all the noise and speculation he create in our minds. Let's trust God and let him tell us what is important and what we need to focus on. How do you know? What is the point of the passage? Let's be devoted to God's word and be changed by it. And let's pursue love and faith in ourselves and in anyone that's under our care. 
But I don't want to leave you with only warnings about unfaithful teachers using God's word poorly. That's not where Paul ends. I just don't have time today to preach the whole letter to you. But I do want to look ahead a little bit to show you the encouraging alternative that Paul presents. So now that we've seen the, how these teachers were misusing God's word, let's look ahead to what a right response to God's word should look like. Far from using God's word to speculate about nonsense or things that aren't important, we should come to the Bible, be humbled by it, and then use it to showcase the glory of Jesus Christ and what he did for us, and to call other people to live their lives for him. So, looking ahead a little bit, Paul models this right attitude and right response to the word of God for us just a few verses later, in, starting in verse 15. Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul got it. Paul understood how to read and how to use the scripture. He didn't just use it to win debates with his buddies or make himself look smart. No. He received God's word like a starving man receives food. And when he taught God's word, he taught it, as, he, as you've probably heard said before, like one poor beggar telling another poor beggar where he can find bread. May this be the attitude of all of us as we approach God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your precious word. Thank you that it's living and active, sharper than the two-edged sword. Thank you that it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. I pray that you would help us to use your word rightly, to be humble by it, to see our own sin and our need for you, but against that black backdrop, to see the shining glory of your grace manifested on the cross of Christ for us to turn to you in thankfulness for all of us who are true believers if anyone in this room is not I pray that you would show them your grace in the face of their sin and their need for you convert them and give them spiritual life and cause us all to see you your glory, your grace, your gospel when we look into your word to not see a, a tool to make us look smart, to win debates, or as something that's interesting, that has a lot of scientifically relevant, relevant details or anything else. 
We want your word. We want to submit to it. Be humbled by it. Get out of it whatever you put in it.